Well, many of you will know the name of George Mueller, a famous Christian who lived in the 1800s and famous for founding a number of orphanages in Bristol, England. Uh, and really, uh, George Mueller is famous for more than just founding those orphanages, but really for how he ran those orphanages. And he did it by never once asking anyone for money. Uh, he simply prayed to the Lord and trusted that the Lord would provide what he needed. Uh, whether that was building houses for the orphans, whether it was feeding or clothing the orphans, or any other need in between. And so George Mueller uh, ran these orphanages this way for uh, many years, many decades, and he did it on purpose. He wanted to show other Christians who by and large he saw as having little faith in God or little trust in the power of prayer, uh, that God could be trusted and that believers could rely on him. He wanted to demonstrate the, the power of prayer, yes, on one hand, but more importantly, George Mueller wanted to demonstrate the power, the power and the faithfulness of the God to whom we pray. Well, there are a number of stories from George Mueller's life that uh, we could tell or recite that demonstrate God, that demonstrates God's provision in his life, uh, that demonstrate the power of prayer and his absolute confidence in God. Uh, but one that stands out is from George Mueller's first trip to North America. He was on an ocean liner heading across the Atlantic, uh, and as they reached the coast of Canada, this ship encountered such dense fog that it couldn't proceed. It wouldn't be safe for the ship to keep going. Uh, well, George Mueller had an appointment in Quebec uh, not that far after they were supposed to land. He believed it was God's will for him to arrive on time, and so he went to the ship's captain and let him know this, let him know that he needed to arrive in Quebec on time. Well, the, the captain of the ship, of, of course, looked at George Mueller, thinking he was a little bit crazy, and said that that was impossible. And so George Mueller invited him below deck to pray. Uh, well, by his own admission, uh, the captain didn't have really great faith that uh, this prayer was going to do much, but he went below deck with George Mueller to pray. And this is what the captain records. Him, this is what the captain records George Mueller praying. Oh, Lord, if it is consistent with thy will, Please remove this fog in five minutes. You know the engagement you made for me in Quebec for Saturday. I believe it is your will. That was it. But amazingly, the fog lifted and George Mueller arrived in Quebec on time. Now, he prayed in faith that if it were consistent with God's will, he, he would arrive on time and God answered his prayer. Uh, George Mueller was a man who believed in the power of prayer because he had an unwavering trust in the God to whom he prayed. And we'll go ahead and, if you will, turn with me to James chapter 5, verses 12 through 20. This is going to be our, our last sermon in James, so this will conclude our time in James. And uh, we'll see in the text for today that James, like George Mueller, was a believer in the power of prayer. And in these verses this week, he exhorts us as God's church to pray. And in the, the, the midst of this exhortation and this encouragement to prayer that, that James gives, and James keeps his focus on some of these themes that have been so prevalent throughout the time in James that if you have been here, you'll, you'll recognize. Uh, so he points to the importance of faith in God as, as demonstrated through prayer, uh, the importance of putting off sin and being doers of God's word. Uh, James once again points to the need for faithful endurance in the Christian life. That's why we need to put off sin and pursue righteousness. Again, we see the importance of our, our words and our speech. And James again points us 
to relationships within the church. He encourages us as the church to be praying for one another, to encourage one another to grow in holiness and maturity, that we might persevere in the faith and receive the crown of life. Uh, So please follow along as I read in James chapter 5, starting in verse 12. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes mean yes and your no mean no, so that you won't fall under judgment. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Elijah was a human being as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. My brothers and sisters, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Please pray. Father, we come before you give you thanks for your word. Uh, Father, we pray that you would use it to encourage us to sanctification, to put off sin, to pray for one another. And Father, I pray that you would uh, speak uh, through me by your spirit uh, today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we come to these last few verses in James, it is kind of tough to find a, a main idea or how all these verses tie together. Again, as you may remember, James is sometimes called the Proverbs of the New Testament because he sometimes just gives this instruction over here and another instruction over there. Uh, so it can be tough to find a, a theme here, but as As James writes these final verses, it seems at least in some sense he returns to the issue of one's speech. It doesn't play the the outsized role like it did in in chapter 3, but James again returns to the issue of one's speech. Uh, So his main idea for this afternoon, I think, and from these verses can be summarized as uh, the fact that your words reflect your heart and your faith. Because your words reflect your heart and your faith, Your words should be trustworthy. Your words should be directed to God in prayer, and they should be used for the good of others. Your words should be trustworthy, they should be directed to God in prayer, and they should be used for the good of others. And so from uh, this text, I have three uh, points for you to consider in the sermon. Uh, The first is be reliable, be reliable, be prayerful, and be loving. Be reliable, be prayerful, and be loving. Uh, So the words you speak, they reflect your works, your faith, and your love. The reliability of your words reflect your works, whether you keep your word. Your prayer reflects your faith, whether you trust in God. And your corrections and exhortations and your prayers for others reflect your love for others. Uh, So first, uh, James encourages you to be reliable or be trustworthy. Look with me again at, at verse 12. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but let your yes mean yes and your no mean no, so that you won't fall under judgment. Uh, Well, if 
you have spent much time reading through the Gospels, you will know that James' words here in James 5 reflect Jesus' words from Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus says, Again, you have heard that it was said to our ancestors, You must not break your oath, but you must keep your oaths to the Lord. But I tell you, don't take an oath at all, either by heaven because it is God's throne, or by earth because it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem because it is the city of the great king. Do not swear by your head because you cannot make a single hair white or black, but let your yes mean yes and your no mean no. Anything more than this is from the evil one. Well now, it is not likely that Jesus and James are forbidding all oaths in either James 5 or Matthew chapter 5. And some court systems, there's a requirement in some nations that you would take an oath of truthfulness before you testify. Uh, marriage vows are in some sense an oath that you take to your spouse in front of others that you are going to be faithful and care for one another. Uh, those aren't what James and Jesus are speaking of here. As most commentators point out, the problem they were addressing that was am among the, the Jewish people in that time, and particularly the religious leaders, oaths have become a way to deceive others rather than a way of emphasizing the truthfulness of one's words. So, for instance, Jesus was criticizing the religious leaders because, as, as one scholar put it, those leaders said swearing by heaven and earth was not binding, nor was swearing by Jerusalem, though swearing toward Jerusalem was. In other words, the, the people at that time, the religious leaders, had begun to play word games with their oaths as a way to not keep their word. So if they swore by Jerusalem, they didn't have to keep their word. That wasn't really a promise or an oath. But if they swore toward Jerusalem, that was a promise. They had to keep it. And so they kind of used it as a way to confuse people and to not keep their word, to, to mask the truthfulness of their word or to not mean, or for their yes to not mean yes or their no to not mean no. Uh, therefore, as, a, as another commentator put it, it is likely that Jesus in Matthew is saying the same thing as James. Our truthfulness should be so consistent and dependable that we need no oath to support it. A simple yes or no should suffice. In other words, Christians' words should be marked by truthfulness and faithfulness. People should know that when you say, yes, I will do something, that you will do it. You say, no, I cannot do that, or I do not have that, or whatever it is, that that is true. As we saw back in, in chapter 3, our words matter. Your words reflect the character of God who is truth and who cannot lie. And the reliability of your words and whether your yes means yes and your no means no are a reflection of whether you are a mere hearer of God's word or whether you are a doer of God's word. Those who commit to do something are to show the truthfulness of their words by following through with their actions. Uh, so as, as James says at the end of verse 12 there, to speak falsely is to invite God's judgment. Uh, that same judgment that he warned the rich about in the verses that we considered last week. Uh, so, brothers and sisters, this afternoon that leads me to ask you, what about you? Are others able to rely on your words? Are they trustworthy? Are you reliable? Are you tempted to tell half-truths or to be slightly deceptive when it might benefit you to mask the truth? Uh, we need to take our words seriously. I 
I think one of the reasons we sometimes don't take our word seriously is because we simply forget what we have committed to. We might tell somebody we're going to show up somewhere and do this thing for them, and we simply forget. But brothers and sisters, uh, we are not infinitely wise. We are going to forget we are fallen human beings. Uh, But that should not be so. If your yes is to be yes and your no is to be no, you need to take your words seriously. You need to remember your commitments. You need to be faithful to follow through. Don't make promises you can't fulfill or don't intend to fulfill. Be careful about giving a hasty answer or making a hasty promise because your yes should be yes and your no should be no. Your words matter. They're a reflection not just of your own personal integrity, but they're a reflection of your Savior. Your words reflect your works. Uh, well, that's the, uh, the first little mini exhortation in these final exhortations that James gets is to be reliable or to be trustworthy, to, to watch your words. But then he also encourages you, and this is the, the second point of the sermon, to be prayerful. Look again with me, with, uh, starting in verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? He should pray. Is anyone cheerful? He should sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church, and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person, and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. Elijah was a human being as we are, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and for three years and six months it did not rain on the land. Then he prayed again, and the sky gave rain, and the land produced its fruit. Well, if you're anything like me, I'm guessing what might draw your attention from these verses is verse 15, in which James writes that the prayer of faith will save the sick person. So I promise we're going to get to that verse. But before we get to that verse, I want you to notice that these verses, James' exhortation to prayer, well, these verses have far more to do with prayer than they have to do with healing. That's James' emphasis here, is prayer. And for that matter, the words that James writes in these verses have far more to do with sin, and they have far more to do with forgiveness than they have to do with any physical healing. And so as we come to the text, that's where we want to place our focus as well. Uh, Notice that James calls his readers, and he calls you, he calls the church to pray in every situation. He calls the church to, to personally pray, you as a Christian, to pray to the Lord, but he also calls the church to pray for one another. And he does this for for two reasons. One, it's because prayer is an expression of faith in God. As we come to the Lord in prayer, it's an expression of our faith in Him. And the second reason that James encourages you to pray is that prayer is powerful. You're praying to a God who hears prayer and a God who answers prayer. Uh, So going back to that, that first reason that James gives, that prayer is an expression of faith in God, in his book, Core Christianity, at Michael Horton, Uh, The author Michael Horton writes that for Christians, often their first instinct when something bad happens, when a trial comes, is to pray. Well, he asks the question, why? Why is that? Why is that a Christian's first instinct? Well, he writes this. It's because you believe in a God who intervenes in this world. Your act of prayer assumes you believe that the world, including you and other people, wasn't self-created and that it isn't self-sustaining. There is a God who transcends the world, but also created it. 
He is good and all-powerful. In other words, for the Christian to pray is an expression of faith in God. Uh, that there is a God who is good, there is a God to whom we can pray, there is a God who is powerful enough to act in the world and who does act in the world. And so James encourages you to pray. So what should you do if you're suffering, if, if trials and temptations come upon you in this life? Well, James says you should pray. And if you go back to, to chapter 1, you might remember some of those things that you might should pray for. James says when you experience various trials and you're trying to count them as all joy, you should turn to the Lord and pray for him for wisdom that you might endure those trials with joy. And you should pray that God would use the trials in your life to strengthen your faith and to help you mature in the faith that you might endure and receive the crown of life. You should certainly pray that, that God might ease your sufferings. You should also pray that God would help you to trust him whether or not he does ease your suffering. And you should thank the Lord that he's using your circumstances for your good. If you've got trials or temptations, you are to turn to the Lord and pray. But maybe you are here this afternoon and, and that's just not you. You're not really struggling with a, uh, any suffering right now. Maybe life is kind of good. You're cheerful. Uh, well, James says that if you're cheerful, what you should you do? You should praise God. You should sing praises to God. And singing praises is a form of prayer. You are turning to the Lord and you are thanking him for what he has done. You are praising him for who he is. You're acknowledging his sovereignty over your circumstances, his goodness, his mercy, whatever it is. So whether you're, you're suffering or whether you're cheerful or any other circumstance in between, I mean, you've got basically the two extremes of life, suffering and cheerfulness, right? Um, anything in between, James is calling you to turn to the Lord in prayer. God is sovereign over all the circumstances of your life. He's sovereign over the good circumstances. He's sovereign over the bad circumstances of your life. And so it's an act of faith to cast your cares on him in the midst of your suffering. And it's an expression of faith to come to him and thank him, acknowledging that he is the one that has brought the good things into your life as well. Well, then in, in verse 14, James turns his attention to those who are sick. He says, if anyone among, is anyone among you sick? He should call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. The prayer of faith will save the sick person and the Lord will raise him up. If he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Uh, now, before Pastor Ben and I uh, get flooded with phone calls this week, I just say that I think James is talking about pretty serious illness here. So in fact, many commentators think that the type of sickness is that the person wasn't even able to get out of bed. And that's why they had to call the elders to them. Uh, in seriousness, we would be happy for you to call us. We'd be happy to pray for you. Um, but when we turn to these verses in, in verse 14 and 15, it, it, admittedly, these are kind of a, a couple of verses that are a bit difficult to, to understand. Is James saying if you simply call the elders to you and they pray over you and they anoint your head with oil that you're going to be healed from whatever sickness you have? If a person has enough faith, if the elders have enough faith when they pray, is, is that going to heal you? What is the purpose of anointing with oil? Why are we anointing with oil when we pray? And what is the connection between healing and the elders praying and forgiveness of sin? Well, that seems kind of confusing too. Uh, so admittedly, uh, these verses are a bit difficult for us to understand. Uh, but uh, when we come to verses like this, it's important for us to follow the principle of letting Scripture interpret Scripture. 
And all that means is that we have a whole Bible that the Lord has given to us. And we believe that God speaks. This is his very words. They're without error. They do not contradict one another. And so as we read those other portions of Scripture, they can help us understand other portions of Scripture. Uh, just like we just read the story of Elijah this morning. James uses that story of Elijah. Well, we understand more what James is meaning by that story because we know something of the story of Elijah. And so first we're going to examine this connection between sickness, healing, and sin here. Um, and so we want to look at what else the Bible might have to say about that. And as we look at the, the big picture of the Bible, the, the big picture of human history, uh, well, if we rewind all the way back to Genesis chapter 3, the Bible teaches that all sickness is the result of sin. Sin entering the world and the subsequent curse uh, that came to creation. However, in saying that, the Bible warns strongly against drawing a direct connection between a specific sickness and a specific sin. So all, sin, all sickness is the result of sin generally. A specific sickness that you may have is not necessarily the result of a specific sin, and the Bible warns about drawing a direct connection between those two things. So if you remember the story of Job, God rebukes Job's friends for assuming his troubles were caused by something that he had done wrong. His friends are convinced that Job must have done something wrong. He had to have done something wrong for him to suffer in these ways, for him to be sick and have lost all his possessions, but God rebukes his friends for that. Nevertheless, the New Testament does indicate that there can sometimes be a connection between sin and sickness. Uh, for instance, in the warning the Apostle Paul gives about taking the Lord's Supper in an, un in an unworthy manner, that, that warning that we read every week before we take the Lord's Supper, well, Paul writes, For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. This is why many are sick and ill among you. He's writing to the church at Corinth. This is why many are sick and ill among you, and many have fallen asleep. If we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the world. Uh, so at least in the, in the case of the Corinthians, it seemed as if their disunity and their conflict as they came to take the Lord's Supper, well, the Lord came and disciplined them for that. that they had sickness and illness. It appears that a few of them even died. And the example that James uses of Elijah here in our verses, well, the reason that Elijah prayed that it would not rain on the earth for three years and six months was because Israel was following after Baal. Uh, that drought was intended to bring Israel back to the worship of the one true God. Now, if we were to maybe think in modern-day terms, I think this could make a little sense. We know that sins such as alcohol or drug abuse, sexual, sexual immorality, they can lead to specific physical sickness and illness. But that's a long aside because in these verses, James doesn't assume the sickness is the result of sin. He simply says, if a person has sins, they will be forgiven. He acknowledges the possibility that an individual that's calling the elders of the church to pray for them, that they can have some serious sin in their life and the sickness is the discipline of the Lord. And so in that context, it makes sense for the individuals to visit, to, to have the elders visit as they may have the, the spiritual maturity and the discernment to help the sick person evaluate their heart, to see what's going on, uh, to confess their sins. And yet, 
And as we're going to look at in a minute, in, in verse 16, this is a role that James doesn't just give the elders of the church. He encourages the whole church to be praying for one another. I mean, the church in Corinth, and Paul writes that if we were properly judging ourselves, we would not be judged. They seem to not be confessing sins to one another and praying for one another and encouraging one another to sanctification. And therefore, the Lord judged them. And so Paul is encouraging, or James is encouraging the church here to be praying for one another, to help one another fight sin. Well, so as we look at verses 14 and 15, I do want to make clear that James isn't giving a guarantee of healing. Uh, if you simply call the elders and pray over you, no matter how sick you might be, uh, James is not guaranteeing healing. Um, in other places of the, the New Testament, uh, we don't see an expectation of healing by those who are sick and afflicted. In 2 Corinthians 12, Paul, great apostle, super holy, faithful, has a thorn in the flesh, and he prays that the Lord would remove it. But God doesn't heal Paul, and instead tells Paul that his grace is sufficient for him. And Paul records others of his companions struggling with sickness, and he never gives them any expectation of healing. And uh, most importantly, if you'll recall, the, the sermon that I preached in James chapter 1, as we went through that first chapter of James, uh, there is no promise that the Christians are going to have a good life. Instead, there's a promise and an expectation of suffering that Christians will endure trials. And not that they will always be healed. And God doesn't promise to heal your every sickness in this life, no matter how strong your faith might be. And to go back to the example of George Mueller, uh, well, when his wife was dying of rheumatic fever, this man who had prayed so expectantly for so much, and the Lord had provided in so many miraculous ways. Uh, well, this is what he prayed, and it might be a slightly different prayer than what you would expect. He said this, George Mueller said this as his wife was dying. I said to myself, no good thing will, be with, will he withhold from them that walk uprightly. I am in myself a poor, worthless sinner, but I have been saved by the blood of Christ. And I do not live in sin. I walk uprightly before God. Therefore, if it is really good for me, my darling wife will be raised up again, as sick as she is. God will restore her again. But if she is not restored again, then it would not be a good thing for me. And so my heart was at rest. I was satisfied with God. Well, friends, that's what a prayer of faith looks like. To trust in God no matter the answer, because God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. His will is supreme, and he will not withhold good from his children. However, I feel like I've said a lot of howevers in this sermon so far, but in saying that God doesn't promise to heal all of our sickness, don't miss the fact that God does heal, and God can heal, that God can comfort in trials. And more importantly, don't miss the fact that prayer is powerful. And this is what James is really pointing to you to in these verses, that God can and does heal, that God can and does work through the prayers of his people and his infinite wisdom in a way that we probably can't fully understand. Though God is sovereign and he's king over the earth, he has for some reason chosen to accomplish many of his purposes through the prayers of his people. God does hear prayer. God acts in response to prayer. I mean, just go read through the Psalms and see how many times the psalmist is comforted by the fact that God hears his prayers. Go read through the Bible and see how many times God answers prayers and answers prayers in miraculous ways. 
And so in any circumstance, suffering, rejoicing, sickness, James encourages you to pray or to have others pray for you. He encourages you to the steadfast faith of George Mueller, who had faith in his God. He had faith in God to provide, and he had faith in God's goodness, and so he prayed in confident faith. And this is, again, likely why James encourages the sick to call the elders to pray for them and to anoint them with oil. Um, the anointing with oil, likely, it's a little confusing. Scholars aren't unanimous in their opinion, but it's likely symbolizing that the sick person is being set aside for God's special care and provision. Uh, the way that maybe an Old Testament priest or, or a king was set apart uh, as they were anointed with oil. It's a way of showing that this person is being set apart to God. And so in his commentary on James, Douglas Moo writes that uh, elders were those spiritual leaders who were recognized for their maturity in the faith. Therefore, it is natural that they, with their deep and rich experience, should be called on to pray for healing. They should be able to discern the will of the Lord and to pray with the faith that recognized and received God's gift of healing. And so James encourages those who are suffering to pray, uh, those who are cheerful to pray, and those who are sick to call for the elders of the church to pray. Uh, brothers and sisters, if you are ever struggling with sickness or a serious sickness, please, please feel free to call on Pastor Ben and myself. We would be happy to pray for you. But I'd also encourage you to turn to the Lord in prayer, because the elders are not some special class of Christians or church members. They are not the ones with the gift of healing. God is. Notice in verse 15, that is the Lord that raises up the sick person, and it's the Lord that forgives the sick person. Notice in verse 16 that James encourages all members of the church to pray for one another. And he encourages the church to do this because it's the prayer of a righteous person that is powerful in its effect. And so in the example that, that James gives of Elijah, when he turns to this story of Elijah, the main encouragement that James provides is not that there are a select few men like Elijah around today, that you have got to go find like the right man of faith who is super powerful in his faith uh, so that he might pray a prayer that gets answered like Elijah's prayer. He doesn't encourage you to attend one of those large faith healing rallies or conferences. He encourages you instead that Elijah was a human being as we are. In other words, the same spirit that was at work at Elijah, the same spirit that raised Christ from the grave is the same spirit that is work, at work in all who repent and believe. And therefore, the story of Elijah is provided to encourage you to pray, to have faith in the God to whom you pray. It's to encourage all members of the church to pray. Just look at what Elijah's prayer accomplished. We should want to pray, and we should pray expectantly. And we should pray and ask the Lord to accomplish his purposes. So pray for the healing of one another. And pray for each other's sanctification. Brothers and sisters, you can confidently pray for yourself and for one another because you have the righteousness of God. You have the righteousness of Christ. And God hears the prayers of his people. Uh, he heard Elijah's prayers and he hears your prayers as well. And don't be duped by men and women who go around claiming to be faith healers. Don't put your faith in those people. Put your faith in God who hears the prayers of all his people and answers the prayers of all his people. Prayer is powerful. And by the virtue of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, all Christians can boldly approach the throne of grace. So brothers and sisters, let me ask you this afternoon, do you believe in the power of prayer? Do you really believe do you really believe that God hears your prayers? 
is your first inclination when something goes wrong in your life? Is it when you suffer trials or face sickness? Is your first inclination to pray? When something good comes into your life, is your first inclination to sing praises to God? Do you believe that God works through prayers? Do you faithfully pray for the salvation of family and friends, even after years and years, believing that God does answer prayers? Do you pray for the people of the city, in this country, those in your home country, that they may repent and believe? Are you persistent in prayer? And is your faith in the God to whom you pray? Do you believe that God is good? And even if he doesn't answer your prayer in the way that you would like, do you have the confident faith of George Mueller that says, if it is really good for me, my darling wife will be raised up again as sick as she is. God will restore her again. But if she is not restored again, then it would not be a good thing for me. And so my heart was at rest. I was satisfied with God. Brothers and sisters, you pray to the God who created the universe by the word of his power. This is the God who hears you, and this is the God who answers. Don't neglect him. Come to him in prayer. Don't doubt him, but trust that he is wise and good, and that he delights to give good things to his children. And so that's a, the second exhortation that James gives. The first is, is to be reliable or trustworthy. The second is to be prayerful. And the third is to be loving. Look with me again at verses 19 and 20. My brothers and sisters, if any among you strays from the truth and someone turns it back, let that person know that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Well, I've been told that here in the UAE, I need to be a bit careful when I ask for directions. I've been told that there's people from certain countries and certain cultures that it's just part of their cultural makeup that they want to be seen as helpful. Maybe it's a bit shameful to say that they don't know. And so they may give you directions whether or not they have any idea of where you're supposed to be going or where you're asking for. Uh, this has not happened to me yet. Uh, I hope it never happens to me, to be honest with you. I could think of better uses of my time than driving around aimlessly on directions that I got from someone. Uh, but perhaps it's happened to you. Now, it's, it's a good thing to want to be helpful. It's, it's hard to fault somebody for wanting to be helpful. Uh, yet, it's no real help at all to send someone in the wrong direction. Uh, and this is every bit as true spiritually as it is for physical directions. When you see a brother or sister pursuing sin or an unwise lifestyle, you aren't to support them in whatever decision they are making because they are your friend and you don't want to offend them. You aren't to encourage them in their sin. You aren't simply to stay out of it and hope that they find their way. It's not really your business, so you shouldn't get involved. No, you're to point them back to the truth. You're to gently and patiently remind them of the truths of God's word and the truths of the of, uh, and encourage their repentance. You're to point out their sin and you're to encourage their repentance. Now, you're to remind them of God's sovereignty, of God's coming judgment, and his near return, those same things that we thought about last week. Now, these can be difficult conversations to have with people, but these conversations are acts of love. This is how a church loves one another and cares for one another and serves one another. 
And James says right there that their soul is at stake. Their eternal destiny is at stake. And so, as James says, if you do point a brother or sister in the right direction, if you do help lead a brother or sister to repentance, you save their soul from certain death. What could be more loving than that? You lead them to forgiveness that is found in Christ Jesus, uh, which covers a multitude of sins. And so, friends, if, if you're here this afternoon and you don't know the Lord, uh, I want you to know that this is our aim each and every week. Uh, this is our aim as we come before you and preach God's word and preach the truth of the gospel to you. God's word is truth. It tells you the right way to go. God's word exposes the error of your way. It exposes your sin, and that is our goal as we preach. If you've been here through the whole series through the book of James, perhaps you have been left wondering at the end of some of these sermons. Do I count it all joy when I face trials? Or do I doubt God's goodness and grumble? Do I actually live in obedience to God's word? Am I a doer of the word? Or do I just sit here each week and hear it without letting it impact my life? Is my faith actually made evident by my works? Do I show favoritism to others? Do I tame my tongue? Do I have godly wisdom? Or is my life characterized by conflict rather than peace? Perhaps you sit here saying that, do I even claim to believe God? Or do I live my life as if he doesn't? Yes. Friends, if you've been here for this sermon series for James, and if you've been asking those questions, that may be the word of God convicting you of your sin and exposing to you the error of your ways. And maybe God's speaking to you through his word and encouraging you to turn from your sin. Uh, friends, uh, God's word is intended to expose our sin. But God's word doesn't just expose your sin. It tells you how to turn from the error of your ways. You can turn from your sin by repenting, by confessing that you have not followed God's word, and by placing your faith in Jesus Christ. Friends, if you do that, God will save your soul from death. That is our prayer for you, and we encourage you, I encourage you this afternoon, to turn from your sins today and place your faith in Jesus Christ. I would be happy to talk to you about that after the service. I'm sure any other of the members of the church would be happy to talk to you about that at the end of the service. And to you, Christian, fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, members of Emmanuel, I hope you see the importance of confessing your sin as well. Confessing is a a thing that happens just as you turn to the Lord at the moment of salvation. Christians are those who daily confess their sins and to pray and ask God to renew their faith in Him. A regular confession of sin is a safeguard from straying from the truth. Sin loves the darkness. Sin loves to remain hidden. But confession brings sin to the light. Over and over again in these verses, James encourages you to turn from your sin. And he places far more emphasis on that than he does on any sort of physical healing. It is far more important that you be spiritually well than you be physically well. And brothers and sisters, I hope you also see the importance of the local church in these verses. In these verses, James really shows you how the local church is to work. Uh, He shows you the members of the church helping one another grow in Christian maturity, helping one another fight sin, praying for one another, encouraging one another. He calls the members of the church to help one another to fight sin so that they may grow to be more like Christ. He calls you to pray for one another and to help another brother or sister who has begun to pursue a sinful lifestyle. He calls you to help them turn from the error of their ways. And so, brothers and sisters, let James' words here encourage you to be the church to take up your role as a member of the family of God, a member of the body of Christ, and to serve one another. 
And so what are some ways that you can do this practically? Well, if we were to look at these verses from James, uh, maybe number way number one is you should pray for one another. James calls you to pray for one another and reminds you of the power of prayer. Well, brothers and sisters, as members of the church together, you should regularly be praying for one another. The church directory that we publish, that admittedly is due for a bit of an update, well, is it, it isn't just so that you can find a phone number or an email address or remember the name of somebody's child when you need it. It's so that you can be praying for one another. Pray through the church directory each week in your quiet times. Pray members will fight sin and persevere in the truth. God may use your prayers to turn a sinner from the error of his ways and save their soul from death. And brothers, in addition to praying for one another, disciple one another. The Christian life is not meant to be lived alone. We see this in, in the picture that James gives us here. He gives a picture of church members praying for one another and, and holding one another accountable. And brothers and sisters, that's really just what discipleship is. It's, it's helping one another follow Jesus. It's seeking the spiritual good of one another. It's a, it's a good thing to come to church weekly and to hear the preaching of God's word. Uh, I encourage you, God commands you to come weekly to church to hear the preaching of God's word. Uh, but the Bible doesn't present a picture of the church as a group of people who simply come every week for a couple of hours to hear some preaching and sing some songs. It just isn't enough. Instead, it pictures the church as a family who gets to know one another, to love one another and encourage one another to imitate Christ. As Hebrews 3.13 says, but encourage each other daily. Not just on Fridays, but encourage each other daily while it is still called today so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. Brothers and sisters, that's what the church is to do for one another, to help one another not be hardened by sin's deception. And this doesn't have to be complicated. It can be as simple as building a friendship with a few members of the church so that they have someone they feel comfortable confessing their sin to, and you have someone you feel comfortable confessing your sin to. It's to pray for each other and point each other to the truths of God's word. And it's to bring one another back when one of you begins to stray and you see sin creeping into another brother or sister's life. Look, this is the reason that we have men's discipleship communities and women's discipleship communities at church. We just want to encourage you to build those type of relationships. We want to, to show you that brothers and sisters that you need one another. You need to pray for one another, confess in one another, to encourage one another to holiness. And the church matters and Christian discipleship matters. And friends, if you're here and you're not a member of the church, uh, I hope this is an encouragement for you to join a church, Emmanuel or another church. And when you join, you are committing to love and serve other members like this, and they are committing to do the same to you. They're committing to watch out for your soul. You're placing yourself under the shepherding and care of elders who want to see your spiritual good, who are willing to pray for you when you are sick or when you're struggling with sin. And being part of a church, I, I hope you just heard, is more than just showing up each week without committing to the other brothers and sisters that you are coming and gathering with. You need the church. God has given you the church. But brothers and sisters, James opening exhortation to you in chapter 1 was to consider it all joy when you face various trials, because the testing of your faith produces endurance, and those who endure will receive the crown of life. Brothers and sisters, God has given you the church to help you endure. He has given you other brothers and sisters to whom you can confess sin. He has given you fellow church members to pray for you, to hold you accountable, and to help you turn from the error of the ways. 
And so, brothers and sisters, let James' final exhortations here be an encouragement to you to be reliable, to be someone who's trustworthy, who people can feel safe confessing their sins to one another, who keeps their commitments, to pray for one another, and to serve and love one another. Don't endure the trials and temptations of life alone. God is the giver of every good and perfect gift. He has given you his grace. He promises to give you his wisdom. He has given you his spirit, but he has also given you the church to help you persevere, that you might receive the crown of life. Let's pray. Father, we...